What's the worst thing about being HIV positive? Probably the worst thing is the whole secret. It has to be the secret. Having to decide, should I tell, shouldn't I tell, constantly. And also having at the back of your mind, knowing that you're going to die of it one day. Like you've got this thing in you and you feel perfectly healthy and fine now and one day it's just going to kill you. <laughs> like It's kind of a scary thought. Actually, when I was younger, I, it was kind of hard to get, accept the idea that it was only one of us could have had it. And then I made myself go and get another blood test and stuff to make sure. And now I just feel it a bit. Either one of, both of us shouldn't have it or one of us or both of us should. Vuli and Becky Umkunanzi are 18-year-old African-Australians. Vuli was born HIV positive, yet his twin brother Becky is negative. Welcome to ABC Radio National's Street Stories. Vuli and Becky were born in Zimbabwe to their Australian mother Megan and African father Richard. The family moved to Australia when the boys were just little babies. Susan Jones is a twin's adoptive mother. On my way to Africa, I had a dream actually that they had twins, which was quite bizarre. And then about a week after I was arrived in Zimbabwe, it was confirmed that Megan was pregnant. She took me to the pub and we had a double brandy each because she'd found out also that it was twins and she needed the courage to tell Richard <laughs> that she was pregnant with twins and he fell on the floor, which was his <laughs> reaction to a lot of events in his life in a very dramatic way. But he, they were pretty pleased and excited about having kids, yeah. Do you get tired of having HIV? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's just so freaking annoying taking tablets every day and, I don't know, keeping a secret and going to doctor's appointments and doing all this stuff and that actually costs quite a bit as well just to get tablets and stuff and it's a hassle I'd rather not have I suppose. Good day. Um just we'll leave for like ten o'clock appointment. Yep. This is the first room Good day. I'm alright, how are you? They found out they were HIV positive when um, the boys were about nine months old. Um, Richard was ill and he went to um, have some tests and discovered that he um, had a form of tuberculosis, which was secondary to um, HIV. By that time I was back in Australia and uh, Megan wrote to me and told me they had been diagnosed um, but they hadn't had the children tested at all. Megan said she couldn't face having the children tested at that point and in fact she didn't get them tested until they were nearly three years old just before, not long before she died because she just felt so horrible about it that she just didn't really want to know about it, about the kids. It was bad enough that they were both positive, not to then think about the implications of the kids. Was there any speculation about the possibility of where they picked it up from? Did they talk about that at all? Mm. Um, Richard used to sort of speculate that he had 
got HIV through medical treatment in Zimbabwe. Uh, Richard remembered one instance where he went to hospital where the nurse had one injection with antibiotics and went, okay, you three have got the same thing and use the same needle on the three of them. And that seemed to be standard practice in Africa at the time. I think that the medical transfer of HIV in Africa is much more prevalent than we in the West really want to believe. We're much happier thinking that they're sexually promiscuous than to think about our interventions for immunisation programs and how that might have had an impact on the spread of HIV there. So what time did you get home? Like 4.30. Oh, God, I didn't hear you come in at all. Uh, you would have been at that stage of sleep. Hmm? I heard you the other night when you came in, clomping through here like nothing. Oh, yeah, that's because I was walking through and then somehow just kept on hitting things. <laughs> if you had to use four words to describe HIV for you and your experience with it, what would they be? Epic. Painful. Long, scary, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you discuss your fears with Becky? Do you talk to him about the fears you have? Yeah. It's, it's very relevant because, I mean, recently um, one of my good friends has gotten pretty sick of we, me and Becky started talking a lot more about it because it just blew our minds because when we saw someone sick in hospital, we realised that's what happened to our parents and that'll probably happen to me and stuff. And, I mean, it is a fear, but... We know it, we've always known it, and you know, it sucks and stuff, but hey, it's there, what, what can we do? We, it's better not, it feels better not to talk about it in a way, like, once I've brought it up and, you know, talked about whatever we can talk about with it, I don't want to bring it up again, because it's a pretty, pretty scary thought. The boys were tested in about 1990, by that stage, both Richard and Megan had been ill. Both were receiving treatment. They were both much more accepting of the fact that they were positive. And um, they decided to get the boys tested to see what was going on there for them. Vully was at that time not as well as Beggy. He was always had colds and coughs and he wasn't growing as vigorously as his brother was. So Megan asked me to go with her and Richard when they got tested and, and getting the results and things like that. She didn't want them to have a different diagnosis. She wanted them to both be the same. That was her biggest fear, was that they would be different in their diagnosis, which in fact is the reality. But um, it was a very tense and um, difficult time. For Richard Megan, there was a lot of guilt. When you have a condition that you pass on to your children inadvertently, there's always a lot of guilt around that. Do you remember when your parents died? Yeah, I do. I remember trying to wake up my um, dad when he first died. That's it, I think. Yeah. So you, you don't remember your mum dying or their funerals and things like that? 
No, I don't remember um, all the funerals and that sort of stuff. No. I swear, it's pretty frustrating um, not to have memories of them, but then again, it's like I'm kind of, I suppose I've just got used to it and grown up with it. It kind of changes the like, meaning as I get older and stuff. When I was little, it was just, you know, this thing that, that's there, and then they died and I realised they died of it. I thought, oh, you know, that's all right, but it's not going to happen to me or anyone else because um, they've got all these tablets and stuff. A year before they died, Megan asked me would I take on the responsibility of the boys after she died. And I remember that very vividly. We, we went down to a palm tree in the Botanic Gardens. It's my personal monument. This is the place where I became a mother, in a way, in a bizarre way. She asked me to, um, if anything happened to them, would I take on the responsibility of the kids? And I just automatically said yes, because you would not say no. They felt that I would be able to keep the boys in contact with both sides of their family and both of their identities. That was the reason that I ended up bringing them up, which in fact I've tried to keep them as much as is humanly possible in contact with um, both their family in Australia and their family in Zimbabwe. Do you feel different to other kids your age? Oh, no, I don't really not. Because I mean, I've, I, everyone has their differences and similarities, so I suppose I feel different in terms of um, my understanding of HIV and sickness and that's and death and that sort of stuff. But I feel the same in terms of the fact I'm 18, I'm a teenager, and I'm just like them. Like, want to party, have a good time, meet people, enjoy life, you know. How hard is it to keep it a secret when you have medications and things like that, and you are living a completely normal life other than you have HIV? It's actually probably pretty pretty good because, I mean, you know, my hair's not falling out or something really obvious that, it, like, with HIV, you could really couldn't tell if you saw someone in the street unless they were dying of AIDS. You couldn't tell that there was anything wrong with them. So in that way, it's a bit easy and you can make up an excuse for why you take your meds. You're growing, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Slowly but surely. Mm, not really. <laughs> He's still giant. Is he? So yeah. How much taller than you is it? Um, I don't know. I think about twenty centimeters, probably, or something. Really? Oh, twenty centimeters, absurd. <laughs> I wasn't really first told that. I mean, I can't remember um, being told that fully had HIV because it's just I was just kind of always known. It feels like it's just been like you know we're pretty much the same, but then that's probably the biggest difference between us, or else. Um, that's what kind of, I suppose it kind of separates us in the biggest way, yeah. Have there ever been times for you growing up where you've um, been fearful of Vully yourself with his cut his arm open or something like that? Have you ever found yourself going, hey? Yeah, if he cuts himself or something, I'll obviously be a bit hesitant to, you know, go at it with open cuts. But it's funny, like, say we might be with a few friends or something and he'll just you know, graze himself, you know, we'll skateboarding or something. And kind of for everyone else, it's just like, oh, yeah, you just graze yourself. But then there's other factors to think about. And, like, 
you might just put on a jumper or something or something to cover it. Oh, that was quick. <laughs> that was about half a second to get in your mouth anyway. I gotta do the four bucks. You haven't chewed it. You haven't chewed it. You didn't chew the last one, you crazy man. <laughs> <laughs> I do have stuff in my mouth, I can't chew. What? <laughs> When he was five, the, there was a World AIDS conference in Amsterdam, I think. He was walking through the lounge room when it was on, just doing his five-year-old business, and he stopped dead in front of the TV and was watching it. And it was sort of like, I thought, no, he has some consciousness of this. I think it's time to bring it out in the open. So I sat them down and told them, like, you know, that thing that HIV and the AIDS thing and, you know, that thing that mummy and daddy died from, well, you've got that too. And for Beggy, it was a shock. Like, he was shocked. He got to see on his little face, he was like, what? But for Vully, he sort of knew. Now, I don't know, you know, I don't know how much Richard and Megan had talked to him. But he he knew, he seemed to be um, accepting of it, on the surface anyway, at the time. But Beggy was incredibly shocked. Um, and from then it just became a matter-of-fact thing in our lives. It was, you know, HIV's there. Um, his viral load is undetectable. His CD4's uh, 564, which is 38%, which is normal and uh, everything else is uh, within normal range. So there, there are no major uh, laboratory or clinical problems with Lily. He's doing well. Cool. <laughs> it's always good to hear. <laughs> I feel better, so much better. There's like the kids support group which is um, just kids from around, say, New South Wales with HIV positive, get together, just talk to each other so, you know, you know that there's, you're not the only one around, so it doesn't feel like that. And you just go there and learn about different experiences from um, other kids and stuff. Then there's Camp Good Time, which is all families, where entire families go to this big camp and get to just connect and um, not feel isolated and all the kids there um, just have a great time as well, all different age groups and stuff. Cause I've, I mean, I've heard about a kid who's, who said um, if it wasn't for Camp Good Time and support groups and stuff that he, he probably wouldn't be here, he probably would have killed himself. It's a bit like that with, um, if, you didn't, if you didn't have any of that stuff and he supported, it'd be much, much harder to deal with. I think it's really helped me to um, get a perspective of what it is and also to recognise that um, other people are living with it as well and that it's not um, just a single battle like a lot of people are doing all around the world. Even without medication, a lot of people are dying and stuff like that constantly. So I, I don't know, I think support groups are one of, the, one of the most helpful things that you can have next to, you know, good families and friends. Friends don't treat me like they used to. Friends I live my burden.
You're listening to Street Stories on ABC Radio National. We're talking to African-Australian twins, Vully, who's HIV positive, and Becky, who's HIV negative. Susan Jones adopted the boys after the death of both of their parents from HIV AIDS. When we went back to Africa when the boys were eight, we went back to the, like, the traditional home land. It's in the southwestern corner of Zimbabwe. The boys had never actually been there um, because Rich and Megan hadn't actually been there before they came to Australia. And that was really um, a significant thing to do. And they actually did some initiation ceremonies with the boys on that visit. By then they were fairly Aussie. They were um, shocked, but it, it didn't really entail anything that outrageous. They basically slaughtered a goat for them and, and poured the bile from the gallbladder onto their hands, which they said they would have done to them when they were babies, that that was it, onto their heads. But what I found from Richard's family is that they're incredibly sensitive and intelligent about cross-cultural interactions. Aunty Emily said to me, when I used to ask, what should I do, what should I do, she just said to me, you do the best that you can, and as long as they still know about their culture, they can chase that up when they're ready. It was pretty crazy recently because one of like our friends who we met through Camp Good Time is really sick at the moment and is probably going to die soon, and like it was really confronting to go see him in hospital and... You know, we walked out of the hospital and we were talking about it and Blue was kind of saying, oh, you know, that's going to be me one day. And it really shows you the reality of it. Like, your body's just weaker and to fight any illness, it's going to just take it out of you. How emotionally difficult is it for you, being the twin of a HIV-positive person? I would... Like, I might feel a bit guilty sometimes maybe just because it wasn't me who like even though we're twins I was still um didn't get HIV for some whatever reason even though it's not me I was, there's still a lot of things to deal with and then then again then there's like you know the possibility that fully could die easier you know then um most people so that's pretty hard as well but I don't think um, it'd be nearly as hard as what he'd go through definitely. Because the boys are twins I've seen lots of instances as they've been growing up where it does affect Beggy as much if not more in some instances as Vully. They're very close and they're very protective of each other. I wonder how the impact of one of them being HIV positive has on their relationship. And I did have an instance when they were a lot younger when I had to say to Beggy, Beggy's very bright, that he was not to hold himself back because of Woolly. Now, was that to do with HIV? I don't know. Was it to do with twins? I don't know. But it's always very difficult to know what's the bit that's... HIV, what's the bit, the fact that their parents have died early on and what's just normal twin behaviour, what's just normal adolescent behaviour. 
and I guess I don't know if how that affects their relationships with getting partners and all of those sorts of things. You know, it sometimes crosses my mind that does that hold Beggy back from having a relationship because he knows that it's more difficult for Vool. I don't know. Do you guys talk about sex? Oh, yeah, we talk about sex sometimes. I think it's hard for me to give him advice kind of thing because I haven't got HIV, so I don't know. Like, I really have no idea how to deal with that. Basically, you just have to be in a pretty serious relationship before he could have sex, I suppose. I really don't know what to say or what to do. I feel so alone in this love attack without you. You make me feel that I'm the one, but just not quite there. What about girls and passion and having sexual relationships? For um, that's it's. I reckon it'd probably be it'd be a lot harder. I mean, when you're a teenager, it's hard enough, you know, to get all this courage to talk to girls and, you know, you're starting to get all interested in the stuff. And then you've got this extra thing that you don't need, yeah, just weigh down on you. So it's a lot harder to tell people when girls are people too. So I suppose, yeah, that's that, there's that factor in it, yeah. Have there been girls that you've, you know, wanted to have a relationship with and haven't and the HIV barrier has stopped you? Oh, yeah, I'd say so, for sure, yeah. Because it's just, it's just too hard, like, it's just such a big psychological barrier. Even recently, I told one of my friends, and that was the first time I really had to do it myself. It was pretty hard to do, but at the same time, it was easy because it was such a relief to say it out in the open. That was kind of the benefit of it, and um, and they didn't have a problem with it. Like, it was pretty fine, I think. But usually the best way, I think, is to kind of bring it up in a conversation but don't connect yourself with it so that just to see what their thoughts and opinions on it are at the moment before you you know just tell them one of the main things that you really never really know how someone's going to react if they were you know one of my friends and they did find out and just all of a sudden turned around and didn't want to have anything to do with this then I wouldn't really want them as a friend in the first place which arm is normally good for you? Um, the right okay. one. Yeah, right one. Let's find some. Tell me if it's too tight for you, okay? Alright? Not pinching there? No. Okay, just do that for me, please. Thank you. Just to pop some veins up. Over the years, it, it, start, it starts as like this little thing that you have to keep secret, and it turns into this big thing that means a lot more that you have to keep secret it's your secret it's not something that your your parents are telling you not to tell it's something that you don't want anyone to tell um Vully's very fearful of people finding out and i have to respect that so therefore i have to be careful who i talk to and what i say to people because being involved with people with hiv i know that there's a lot of um fear and a lot of stigma I mean, there have been instances where people have been ostracised from their family and friends or victimised, and I would hate any of that to happen to Vully. That hasn't 
so far been my experience. My experience of disclosure has only been a positive one. It's not something you can test before you do it. Two years ago, Vully was going on a camp which involved him travelling overseas, which involved him taking his medication. And I said to him, we had a big talk, and I said, I think we need to tell this group that you're going with that you are positive. And he didn't want to. And I said, well, I think we better do it now than for them to find out at the airport in a foreign country that you've got a bag full of medication and they don't know what it's on about. It was very, very difficult. So we did go through the process of informing this organisation, who was fantastic. It was absolutely... They were just wonderful. But the tension leading up to that disclosure was horrendous. I was so angry... And so I threw all the furniture off the back veranda one afternoon and probably spent quite a few hours crying just out of sheer anger that the world, you just can't say, you can go and say, look, I've got cancer or, you know, I've got cystic fibrosis or, I, you know, I've got some other sort of um, life-threatening, but you can't say, oh, I've got HIV or, oh, by the way, my son has HIV without there being mass hysteria. That makes me really, really annoyed. I I'm, I'm, can be very passionately annoyed about that. I guess that's why I don't mind speaking out like on this, because it, I really care that people have to um, hide. And when you hide, and as a kid, as you hide, you have to hide other parts of yourself as well, because you're not sure whether it's going to accidentally leak out. And that's not fair either. You, you don't like to let a lot of people know. Is that because you yourself want to keep it a secret or because you're protecting fully? Um, sometimes I might keep it a secret just to protect fully, but it's also me because some people might say, like I say, oh, my parents died when I was little. They'd say, oh, how'd they die? And I'd just say, car crash or something like that because there's so much stigma around AIDS and everything. Most people would think, oh, well, if the parents had it, then the kids are going to have it as well. I suppose if I wasn't, wasn't a twin, then I could say, oh, yeah, they died from AIDS, but I don't have it. But I can't really say that because then I've got a twin as well. So what do you think about that? At the end of the day... Um, dealing with, you know, telling people and so on. It's just kind of a side factor away from the reality of HIV that, you know, it's a disease that could kill you. How do you deal with thinking, are my life shorter than other people's? Any day now I could fall ill possibly and die. How do you deal with that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the, that is something that seems like pretty harsh and stuff, but... Then again, the way I deal with it is that I've been healthy most of my life and I mean, I think oh, HIV could kill me one day and it probably will, but then again, so could a bus or a train or, you know, a natural disaster or anything like in this world. I mean, in a way, I suppose it's not too much of a monkey on my back because you have to die of something, I suppose, and I've kind of grown used to the thought. And I'm so healthy right now, I kind of don't feel like it's going to happen in a way. If something happens, 
out of my control, then I can, I mean, all I can do is accept it. I'm just hoping that with the medication stuff, I can go for as long as possible. This last, hopefully, live till I'm an old man or something. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Today's Street Stories is dedicated to the memory of Vully and Becky's friend, who sadly passed away during the making of this program. If you'd like to donate to Camp Good Time, we'll have details on the ABC Radio National Street Stories website. We'd also love to hear your comments on this program in our guest book. Technical production was by Philip Ullman and I'm Julie Kimberley. Well, here's a true story that must be told About two cool brothers, 18 years old You might look at us and think we're Aussie, mate But we were born overseas in Zimbabwe We got cool tans And fuzzy hair And, and like pie and sauce, we're an incredible pair I'm top deck And now for Daisy, yeah And we, we like to rap, oh, yeah, that's a fact Well, my name is Bully, let me begin By telling you that I'm the oldest twin Now you may think I'm lying, may think I'm rude But I'm only this tall, cause he stole my food Yeah, beg is my name, man, that ain't no fool And I can rap any style from new to old school This is Invitation for the fly ladies, get down and I'll show you the reason why I earn the crown. And, and together, together, forever, we're just too fresh. We'll ease through, breeze you, and pass the test. Cause we're the never stopping. So stopping. Pardon popping. So shocking. If we can. If we can. can. Come, Come on, on the bridge of hands. I don't know. <laughs>